A blessed Sunday, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the first Sunday of September, and we're going into the sixth month almost of our uh, quarantine. And we continue to put our hopes in God in the midst of the unrest and uh, the uncertainty around us. So today's message will be on Psalm uh, chapter 1, and I entitled the message, Choosing Sides. And I would like you uh, to understand why. And let me begin by talking about the pursuit of happiness in human life. It seems as if for every human being on the face of the planet, the main thing is enjoying a degree of happiness. That all of their life from birth, uh, growing up as a child until their adulthood, it's all about pursuing the idea of happiness, how to be truly happy about oneself. So the world tells us that happiness and success go hand in hand. And the world's message about success is this. Success happens when everything uh, is done according to your plan. When you have achieved greatness, when you have earned lots of money, when you are at the pinnacle of your goals and achievements, then they define that as success. And happiness is to be able to enjoy to a degree that success that you have achieved. And so this is what the world communicates to us so that you can only be happy when you are successful. But the dilemma for most people in the world today is that this idea of success is hard to reach, right? It is very hard to become the successful person that the world considers as successful. So it gives us this dilemma that happiness becomes an unreachable goal of human life. So what will people do instead? People will take their own happiness into their own hands and believe that indeed happiness is a choice, that a person have a choice to live a happy life despite there is no success in sight. So Joshua Becker suggests that these are some of the places people tend to look for happiness in life, right? Because they simply want to be happy and success is hard to reach. Probably people look for happiness in their next purchase when they can own the the newest gadget or when they um, have uh, what they want to have a new bag or something to add into their collection. Or probably they find happiness when they receive their uh, next paycheck, okay, that they can purchase whatever they want, go out uh, and do whatever they want when they receive their next paycheck. Another is that people find happiness in their next relationship. This relationship didn't work. I can have a divorce. Find another relationship. Maybe I'll find happiness there. And so happiness is always uh, not there because it's somebody else's fault. Or probably for some, it's their looks. It's their next physical enhancement. The next correction to their face, a facelift maybe. Okay, or how they look. Another muscle built. Um, For some, it is about their next competition because life is all about achieving every single time or the next job. This job sucks, another job might bring some happiness or probably the next escape. When they're in their uh, homes watching their latest uh, Netflix or probably uh, when they're in a vacation or whatever they like to do, that would be their uh, uh, source of happiness. And So, they look for the next person who can solve all of their problems. And when that person cannot solve all their problems, they blame that person and look for another savior. And last but not the least, in simply accepting that things are just the way they are and just, you know, bear with it. So, people find happiness from different places because they really want to be happy And happiness, according to the world, is success. And success is more difficult to uh, to gain than it is. So are people really finding happiness from these bits and pieces that offer happiness in the world? Or this is just a mere cover-up to the real thing? 
So if you look at our generation today, it seems that the people have become endorphin or adrenaline junkies. They are looking for the next high from the different things that they do. They try to self-medicate their miseries away even for a moment so that their problems won't seem too big even though success is far from close to them. Now the question is when we look at the Bible for what uh, it calls as happiness, what is the biblical picture of happiness? The question is, will we be happy with how the Bible portrays it? Or we will not be happy about how the Bible sees happiness? So can we pray for the Lord to really uh, help us gain perspective from Psalm chapter 1 about the real deal of happiness? Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, in this life, most of us are in the pursuit of seeking for happiness in our life. But we know, Lord, that you have a different purpose in store where that is part of it. You said, seek fresh your kingdom and your righteousness and all these things will be added to us. Give us the proper perspective so that our life will really matter in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last month, we, uh, we closed the series on the Gospel of John, but today we're starting a new series uh, for four weeks. We're going through the book of Psalms. So Psalms is 150 chapters, and you might be wondering why we're just having for four weeks. So um, the, the pastors in charge of the pulpit, they actually decided that every September for four weeks, we will be delving into the book of Psalms just in time for our Sacred Music Sunday. So we will be looking into Psalms for Psalm every year. So for this month, we will be looking today at a Wisdom Psalm, next week a Psalm of Praise, on the third week a Psalm of Trust, and on the last week what we call a Pilgrim Psalm. And uh, each of these psalms has something that it relates to the life of a follower of God. So the book of Psalms, actually, the book of Psalms is a collection of songs. So you can call it the ancient uh, hymn book of the people of Israel. There are many writers in the psalm. Many of them are named. Some uh, psalms, uh, the authors are not named. And many of them were written by David, but not all. So there is a psalm for every occasion. So what's wonderful about this book, it is aptly describes what kind of a God uh, Yahweh is that we worship and also his actions. So as you study the Psalms, you get to have a picture of, a clear picture of God more and more each time. And it's also clear that the Psalm contained many messianic prophecies. So most of them were written by David, but not all. But it does talk about the deliverance that will come, the Messiah that is to come. And you remember when Jesus was walking with disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opened their eyes so that they will know how the law, the prophets, and the Psalms spoke about him. And so the Psalms also talk about the coming Christ. Now, if you were uh, to be given the opportunity to create a soundtrack to depict your life from birth up to the end of your life, what songs will you add in? Will you choose songs that portray the victories of your life? Also the failures and the downtimes, the special moments, the milestones. How would you pick songs to depict each and every turning point in your life? What will you include in the playlist and why? The book of Psalms actually is like the soundtrack of the Christian life. Because it's not just merely a songbook. It has been a source of comfort, encouragement, and help for many who seriously take it into heart. It, is, it gives words to our deepest longings and struggles. And also, it helps us express our uh, strongest sense of joy and celebration. It is a mirror of the changing emotions of a worshiper in face of an unchanging God. In the midst of changing 
circumstances, in the midst of changing perspectives and emotions, God remains the same. So, the book of Psalms gives us a picture of how did the people of God relate to a consistent, unchanging God in an inconsistent, ever-changing world. So that is the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms doesn't only talk about praise. It also talks about loneliness, hunger, deprivation, sadness. It has complaints. It has questions. That is an expression of how people reacted to each and every changing situation, yet find an, a consistent and unchanging, trustworthy, almighty, and powerful God. So now we go to Psalm chapter 1. And you, when you look at this psalm, it seems like a strange way to start a hymn book. Because if you ask me what I would put as chapter 1, I will talk about God being the creator, God being the sustainer of the universe, a description of who God is as the first of the songs. But instead, the compiler put there a wisdom psalm, an instruction of how to live a blessed life. And it uh, resonates with our theme of finding true happiness, the ultimate pursuit of humans today. So if you look at this psalm, it sets the stage for worship. Because if you don't choose what kind of life you want to live, it's hard for you to worship God. It gives ground rules of what kind of worshipers God seek, so that the songs each and every uh, psalm makes sense. It's a fitting prologue to a people of God called to worship Him, to prepare one's life. That's why it resonates well with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled with your brother and come and offer your gift. Because uh, the songs that we sing, the praise that we utter matters to God, but what matters more is the quality of life we bring before our God. And that is why this is placed at the very beginning of this ancient hymn book. The theme here is how to be blessed. And so blessed in simple terms means to be favored of God. Right? And its opposite is to be under God's wrath. To be blessed is to be taken care of, to be provided for, to enjoy God. And in simple translated terms, to be blessed is to be happy. Now, the Bible tells us that this happiness or state of blessedness is more a condition of one's heart rather than it's based on these circumstances. Otherwise, we will always want an easy life. But true blessedness happens even in the hardest of times. It was never about the absence of suffering or challenges in life. If you look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus already laid down that blessedness includes being poor in spirit, mournful, persevering suffering, being a peacemaker, all the things that are difficult and, uh, to do. That is what means to be truly blessed. So the Bible never promised the absence of suffering and challenges. But sure enough, living a blessed life is fully dependent on the promises and the presence of God. We can surrender to God and depend on God that He will fulfill all that He promised to us. And that's why in John 10 verse 10, Jesus tells His disciples, I came so that you may have life and have it to the full. And so Jesus expects those who follow Him, who carry their crosses, to live a full and meaningful life. A life following the purposes of God. So what about happiness can we learn from Psalm chapter 1, the prologue of the songbook of Israel? First, that if 
happiness truly is our choice, that what kind of a choice is it? So if you have uh, watched the movie Hook uh, with Robin Williams, uh, there was a scene there where he was carrying a chalk. He was uh, as Peter Pan. And then he drew a chalk in the middle of the uh, floor. And uh, he was standing on one side and one of the older lost boys standing on the other side. And he asked, which side are you on? You have to choose side. You have to be either on that side or this side. The point is, you all have to take a side. You cannot be with both. And so that is what the uh, writer of the psalm is trying to say. We need to choose a side. And so he begins by giving us a description of the blessed life. And this is depicted by two words. Either it's a life that is um, according to the word, or a life that is influenced by the world. And allow me to read with you this uh, verse in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So if you look carefully at these two verses, it seems like the psalmist is trying to highlight two different ways that the person has to choose of how they will live. And yet, he clearly recommends one over the other. So he is telling the worshiper, opening the book of Psalms, you first need to choose your side. You cannot live two ways because one is in conflict with the other. Either you choose to be corrupted by the patterns of the world. For example, it says here, walking in the counsel of the wicked. It means we listen to the values and the teachings of the world. We believe in its lies, that all and everything is about image, it's about pleasure, it's about getting what we want. So if we follow the counsel of the wicked, then we also do what the wicked's, wicked people do. We stand in the way of sinners. We end up participating in their sinful deeds we end up also participating to sin against God in every way. It affects our speech, it affects our priorities, our actions, our relationships, and we say it's okay because everyone else is doing it. And last but not the least is to sit in the seat of scoffers. It's at the end of really living a wicked life saying that there is no God. Not with our lips, but with how we live our lives. So that is how it looks like when you are being corrupted by the world. Small, medium, large steps. And then until you are already what seared in your conscience to do evil. And so Yuri Gagarin was uh, in your science books, the first one to uh, fly in orbit as an astronaut. And when he was in space, he made this outrageous statement. I see the space, but I don't see God. I see space, but I don't see God. And indeed, some Christians later on said, if he wanted to see God, he should have opened the hatch because by then he would have seen God. He would instantly die and meet his maker and then he would have seen God. Not because we can live in evil existence. There is no God because one day, when the life ends, we will know there is a God. So bad company corrupts good character. And as we allow the worldly influence around us to corrupt our hearts, we end up compromising our faith and our convictions. 
So this is how Philippians 3 describes this kind of a life. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with mind set on earthly things. Because they think that they are free to do all the wickedness they can and get away with it and so deceive themselves. This is the first way to live. The second way to live, according to this passage, is being renewed by the Word of God. And it says here, delight in the law of the Lord. When you say the word delight, it connotes an excitement, a passion to study the Word of God, a hunger, a thirst to get to know the Word of God, to get to know God Himself, and to experience Him. Just like what Psalm 19 describes. Reading the Word of God is like honey to my lips, water to my soul, a lamp unto my feet. My counsel, my great reward, my soul encouragement. And you're just so excited daily to be in the Word because there is where you experience God. And it says here to meditate it day and night. Not only to enjoy the word, but also to consider carefully everything it says. It calls for studying, reflecting, application, and hardest of all, obedience. To surrender our gods and to stop our wicked deeds and to ask the Lord to change us. It's easier said than done. So when we read the Bible, we do not escape into a different virtual world. Rather, we try to match the reality of the Bible with our reality. What does the Bible say about what is happening in our life? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. And so, we draw the line. Worshipper of God, worshipper of Yahweh, before you start worshiping God, choose your side. Will you be allowing the corruption of the world in your life or the word of God to transform you into Christ's likeness? What is a greater influence in your life when people look or when God sees you? Is it the world or the word? Because one cannot tolerate the other. Drawing this line is very common in Scripture. And that's why um, Joshua, in the book of Joshua, before entering the promised land, Joshua 1, 8 says, Do not let this book of law depart from your mouth, meditate on it day and night, and be careful to do everything written in it, then you will become prosperous and successful. And Joshua put that in heart when he mentioned that verse because later on, when they were entering the promised land in Joshua chapter 24, he makes a choice and then he draws the line and asks everyone else to make the choice before going into the promised land as the people of God. He says, choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus himself said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will love one and despise the other. You cannot love both God and money. So the psalmist Ask the worshiper of God to clear, make clear, choose your side to allow the corruption of the world to grow in you or rather to let the word of God transform you. So the choice is not really about the world or the word. The choice is really to receive God and his plan or to reject God wholesale and go your own way. To be the people of God 
or to be the enemies of God. And so as we look at this choice, we have to understand that there is a place for repentance and renewal for a person who needs God. First and foremost, they have to turn the other way, to turn their back to the world, to the old way of life, and to turn to the word, the transforming life-giving word of God. One is a decision, repentance. The other is a process, Christ-likeness, as we allow the word to continue to transform us. The word or the world. Choose your side. And if it were not enough, after giving a description, the psalmist moves to give an analogy. He expands these principles he just gave in the first two verses to drive his sales pitch. It's like after showing them the goods, these are the goods, he now contrasts the benefits of the products against the competitor, hoping to convince the person to choose one instead of the other. And so this is the description of a blessed life in an analogy form. Psalmist says he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, it prospers. And the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Two ways to live also refers to the reality that there will be two outcomes depending on how we live our life. The first is a life that is rooted in the right place. For crops to grow well, there are necessary conditions. For example, good crops will require the right temperature, the right lighting, the right type of water, the right soil type, the right mineral nutrients, the right amount of oxygen, and support. So if you want to be fruitful in life, the Bible is clear that there are priorities that must be in place so that you will produce a fruitful life, so that you will become like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and whatever it does prospers. Because when you are planted at the right place at the right time, then you will be able to live out fruitfulness because you're living according to the purpose of God for your life. In the recent news in Israel, there was a uh, N99 mask being remodeled to be the most expensive mask ever. The million-dollar face mask is worth $1.5 million US dollars with 3,600 white and black diamonds. $1.5 US dollars for a mask for COVID-19. It was ordered by an American-Chinese businessman apparently to give to his lover. And so I guess if that person will use the mask to prevent from getting sick of COVID-19 or that diamond-studded $1.5 million will simply be on display. So however expensive that mask is, if it doesn't do its purpose, then it is useless. And so whatever your talents are, your giftings are, how intelligent, how pretty you are, if you're not living according to the purposes of God, then how are you described in this passage? You are rejected because you are not rooted simply like chaff that the wind drives away. Nothing lasts. Beauty doesn't last. Your intelligence and academic excellence doesn't last. You cannot bring anything beyond the grave. They all fade away. Rust and moth destroys them all. Now, why did the psalmist use chaff? as an analogy. Now, chaff is the black part of uh, burning coal, right? So we will see that 
it just simply, when blown away by the wind, disappears into smoke. In other words, totally useless. So what kind of an outcome do you want with your life? Here is what the psalmist is saying. Do you want a life that is fully rooted and fruitful? Or do you want a life that amounts to nothing after enjoying all the pleasures of life? It ends up meaningless, void, just like in Ecclesiastes, when Solomon enjoyed his life too much, yet found it all a chasing after the wind. So case study was made of Jonathan Edwards, this Puritan preacher in the 1700s, and he was considered one of the most respected preachers during his time. So he attended Yale at the early age of 13, and later on, he became the president of Princeton College. He married his wife Sarah in 1727, and they had 11 children. And every night when Mr. Edwards was home, he would spend time for an hour conversing with his family about God and praying a blessing over each of his children. Jonathan and his wife Sarah passed on a great godly uh, legacy to all of their 11 kids. So an American educator, A.E. Winship, decided to trace the descendants of Jonathan Edwards after 150 years that he died. And his findings were absolutely remarkable, especially when he compared it to another man born during that time by the name of Max Jukes. And you have, might have heard this illustration before, but look at Edward's legacy because he chose to be rooted. First, there was one U.S. vice president among his descendants, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professionals, 75 military officers, 80 who hold public office, 100 lawyers, 100 pastors, 285 who finish school. Well, how do you explain such a life? Edward was a godly man, a hardworking man. He was also intelligent and moral person. So, much of the capacity and, ta and talent and intensity and the character of the 1,400 descendants of Jonathan Edwards is not only because of him, but also due to his wife, because both of them left them a godly legacy. But compared to Max Jukes, who came to the people's attention because there were 42 different men who were part of the New York prison system traced back to Max. Max lived in New York at the same period as Edward, and the Jukes family originally was studied by sociologist Richard Dugdale in 1877. Now, Jukes' descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 convicts, 310 paupers, 440 who were physically wrecked by an addiction to alcohol, 1,200 descendants were studied, 300 of them died at an early age. And so these contrasting legacies provide for us a five-generation rule, how a parent raises their child, the love that they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they provide, the education they provide, the influence into their child's life. Influence not only their children, but to four to five generations, either for the good or for the evil. So I wonder, after 100 years, if somebody start, studies your family tree, what would they find? It's not dependent on you. It is dependent on what God does through you and the people that comes after you. And that's why in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it says, 
the Lord passed him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, a forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children and the children's children to a third and fourth generation. Will we choose to live a fruitful life or a fruitless life? Now, if happiness were a choice, then it is a choice between being rooted to bear fruit for many generations or to be rejected, forgotten. If you continue to choose the wrong side today, then what do you think will become the outlife, outcome of your life from now until you die? What do you think will be the outcome of your life after you are gone? Or your children? Or your next generation? So that's why Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. What does that mean? It requires commitment and consistency. Ephesians 5.15, Paul says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Remember, Jesus talked about the parable of a soil. There's only one soil where it bears fruit a 30, 60, and 100 fold. And the soil is how they receive the word of God. And good soil is such that the person receives the word of God with gladness and puts it to heart and makes it their life. So how does Jesus compare a person who chooses wickedness it's like light being placed under a bowl, salt losing its saltiness, okay? or a branch cut out and thrown to the fire, forgotten, unneeded, unwanted. So commitment and consistency is needed for you to mature co continually as a follower of Christ. Maybe you have already made a choice between the Word and the world. You choose to follow Christ. But it is not just a decision, it's a process where you need to make a commitment every day to choose the Word over the world and a consistency based on the life discipline you build to stay at that commitment. Now, it is clear here that happiness is rather an outcome of obedience and that when we have chosen to follow Christ, we must also choose daily how to live. It is not a matter of willpower, how strong your will is, how capable you are. It is a matter of surrendering yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit and allowing Christ to transform you from the inside out. It is many hours on your knees praying in his word reflecting and allowing those truths to change how you think, how you feel, how you act, how you live. But that is the question. Will we choose to be faithful and fruitful or we would rather enjoy our life the way we want it to be and eventually we gain the whole world yet forfeit our soul? You have only one life, one life to offer Christ. Will you take it for your own use? Or will you surrender it to him? Last but not the least, if it were not enough, a sales pitch was not enough, the psalmist ends with a warning. Will you choose reward or retribution? Because judgment is part of the equation of life. And it resonates with the second coming of Jesus where we will one day be judged according to our deeds. And at that time, God sifts through the records of our life to take a look, to take an inventory, to take an accounting of how we lived our 
life. Now, God's judgment is not only limited to the future second coming, but it's actually happening already. Disasters are happening today, not because the world has gone out of control, but because it is already under judgment, under the wrath of God. So Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter, Uh, in the book of Matthew, in the end, in chapter 24, the wicked will not stand, uh, that judgment has already come and the signs are here. And we have to keep watch how we live our lives. So verse 5 of uh, Psalm 1 says, the wicked will not stand in judgment, the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God is a God of justice. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. So, when we make uh, wicked deeds, then we have what we call present consequences. But aside from present consequences, there will be also future eternal retribution because the wages of sin is death. And the Bible also says, not one is righteous, not even one. So therefore, we are all supposed to be on the path of retribution. But you know what? Jesus died on the cross to clothe us with his righteousness, to take away our guilt and shame. And that's why when we surrender our lives to him, we are also to serve and love him. Christ has brought us over and by His grace through faith so that we are no longer under the judgment of God's wrath, but we still need to work for our reward. And also there are present and future rewards of obedience, just as there are present and future consequences of disobedience. So we are asked to run our, the race mark out for us perseverance because at the end on the judgment seat of Christ he will take an accounting. Now let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, if anyone builds of the, on uh, the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw each one work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so we need to run the race, fight the good fight, to win the prize to glorify God, to honor God, because He also promised to honor us back. And this calls for priority, that we will shun aimless living. Having Christ is not enough. We need to live according to His purpose, to make disciples, to live a life that exemplifies Christ-likeness, to become like Him in His character and priorities, looking forward that He will return he will come to judge us. And so let me read Matthew 24. It says, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. So Jesus says, He will come back at the most unexpected time because He wants you and I to be always on our toes, watchful and alert. It reminds us of the parable of the ten virgins. Five were ready, five were unready, so when the bridegroom comes, he receives the five and rejects the other five. A choice of retribution or 
reward. And so, the psalmist very clearly asked them, pick your side today before you come and worship God. And so you and I, as we worship today also, the challenge for us to choose which side we want and which side we want to reflect how we live. And so imagine the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, hearing from Jesus, whom they didn't recognize at first, how the law, the psalm, and the prophet spoke about him. And even Psalm chapter 1 gives us a picture of righteousness only made possible by faith in Jesus. On our own, we cannot be righteous. But in Christ, we are made righteous through his death. And as he lived, we shall also live. The pages of the book of Psalms contains more about the Christian life that we know right now. It speaks about a life of true worship, a life that honors God, not only the music, not only the lyrics, not only the songs, not only the worship ceremony, but every single person making their choice to live a life rooted in God's truth. So as a conclusion, let me share to you this. Happiness is not the choice we are to make. The choice we are to make is to accept God and His purposes in our life or to totally reject Him and His purposes and live our life our own way. And happiness is the product of our choices. Are we to follow Him or to disobey Him? Because there is no middle ground. Either we choose to follow God and His design to enjoy His presence, protection, or provision, or we choose the world and we are doomed along with its consequences and judgment. So brothers and sisters in Jesus, let me remind you, the consequences of this obedience is far harder than the consequences of obedience. Because when we obey, God takes care of us. When we disobey, we are under the wrath of God. Now, if you have not yet chosen your side today, then you need to make your choice. And the solution for you is repentance from your old way of life and renewal to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and to also allow Him to transform you by studying His life-giving Word. If you come today as a Christian and you are struggling with the affairs of this world, troubled by the concerns and worries, then what you need in your life is commitment and consistency. Right? To really do what you are called to do and stay at it by developing godly habits, reading the Word, prayer, fellowship, worship, and also discipleship. Now, if you are serving God and the rubber meets the road, life is difficult, serving God is not as easy than you think, then probably what you need is to recalibrate your priorities so that you can persevere to receive your reward in Christ. Choosing sides, that is what we need to do to be worshipers of the true God. Allow me to close with this story, and I hope this encourages you. There was an American businessman who went to Paris to buy his wife an anniversary present, and he bought this little box, a phosphorescent mother-of-pearl box. It was small, yet intricately made beautiful. So he was so excited because it radiated a wonderful light. So he packed it in his trunk and flew back home and during uh, the family dinner, he asked the light to be put out and he took out his gift. 
and it was pitch black. It didn't let up, and he was so upset because he thought he was deceived okay, by uh, the market. So he was really angry, and he walked out of the room. But the wife felt curious what happened, and so he took the box and carefully examined this jewelry, small jewelry box, and he saw some words written in French. And so he looked for friends who knew how to speak in French, and they interpreted the words for him. And so the next evening, the wife asked the lights closed, and there it was, radiating phosphorescent lights. And so the husband was bewildered and asked, what happened? And so the wife recounted the story and told the husband what the words were. Written on that box was this, If you keep me all day long in the sunlight, I will shine for you all night long in the darkness. If you keep me all day long in the sunlight, I will shine for you all night long in the darkness. If we want to live a life that honors God, then we need to feed into His Word, to spend time in the presence of God, to fill our souls inside, and then we can shine for Jesus by radiating the light He shines into us in this dark and fallen world. And so that we are not merely surviving this pandemic, we thrive for Jesus. May the Lord encourage you as you choose your side that he will be with you always to the very end of the age. Let us pray. Lord, it is not easy to choose you. Every single day we face many questions and challenges. But thank you for your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for the resources you have put into our lives. Your word is there. The church is there. The fellowship of believers is there. We can access you, Lord, in prayer. And Lord, you have also empowered us with your spirit. But Father, we acknowledge that unless we put to heart all that you teach and we really, oh Lord, discipline our lives, it is of no value. So help us to choose to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you each day. According to your purpose and plan, we want to live. Draw us near as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you and God bless you. Have a blessed Sunday.